Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast. This is our 100th episode, part B. Um, we are bringing you 100 facts from the world of science and often, I hope, we, we're trying to aim for plant science, but like you, you, you get Sometimes what you get. Sometimes we miss. Yeah, <laughs> this is free. This Exactly. There's no, like, no returns. Um, take it or leave it. But I hope you take... Uh, the next batch of 25 facts we did 25 in the last episode and we will do 25 this and you might guess what we do in the third and fourth iteration of the hundreds episode of this podcast 25 mm. facts every single time yeah except we've, we've realized in the first episode we weren't very good at counting and probably mm -hmm. there was either not enough facts or some bonus facts in there but just yeah, I think there was some like free content, like when you get a cereal Ooh. box and it has like a little like ten percent extra extension mm -hmm. on the box. This was the last episode, but this one will be just twenty five facts, no extras, no freebies. Okay, um, do you want to go with fact one? Should I? Should we do it like last week where I um yeah I scream words at you? Yeah, and I'll try to find something in my list this time. I even put some of the words that I would put like <laughs> that I would um that you tag would it with. And uh, so maybe okay. maybe you hit one of those. Uh, hot. Oh yeah, I have something. Um, it's even at the top of my list. That's why I scrolled past it the first time. Um, I found a plant that only has two leaves, and that has been around since the beginning of the Iron Age. That's like three thousand years ago. Um, maybe you, you've heard of it. It's like sometimes you find it in like botanical gardens. It's called Velvicia. And that's my... F oh! Yeah. Do you know it? Is it the one with the flowing leaves? Mm-hmm. That grows in the desert? <clears throat> exactly. And... Uh, I feel like you've talked about this before on the podcast, maybe. I think so, too. Like, I like I found a new article that I didn't know, but I it also was very familiar to me. Like, I know that um, mm -hmm. in the botanical garden, at least in Berlin, but I think I've seen it in other botani botanical gardens as well, they often have it, and then you see, like, essentially it looks like two leaves coming out of the ground and these leaves are very long at the end they're like dry and curly and sort of folding on on themselves and in the center they're like fresh and green um and that's pretty much all that is to the plant and um this is yeah this plant um can pretty much grow forever and lives in some of the hottest places in the world like in in, in the deserts in north africa um, I have a couple of facts about that um, th that plant. And the next fact is that it was described in the 19th century as it's out of the question, the most wonderful plant ever brought to this country. And I think um, this is the UK, that the country that they're talking about. It is out of the question, the most wonderful plant ever brought to this country and one of the ugliest. Um, because it has these like two fibrous leaves that come out of the base and they sort of by design dry out at the end so you never get like a pretty like fresh looking plant it will always mm -hmm. have like the dry dead bits at the end because this is just how it grows um i think we've just had to edit some stuff out here because <laughs> yoram had a fact that turned out to be a blatant lie and actually made both of us question all of the research we each did in our phds as well um because we couldn't remember which way up a leaf was and which part of the leaf was growing and was younger and was older um it turns out our phds are fine please don't come at us and don't take away my doctorate because i need that i'm a woman i don't want to be a miss i don't want to be a missus i want to be a doctor um but Yoram has now lost 10 points because one of his facts sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I um, I just took something and this goes to show like how important it is to have like some sort of scientific literacy. Um, 
<laughs> because I just took what I read and believed it, and it wasn't true. Yeah. Um, so the the correct so fact that the, the correct fact is that um, without you knowing, like I cut out the wrong stuff that I said, but the correct fact is that the Woolwitcher leaves um, they grow from the base continuously. Um, mm -hmm. and that makes it uh, special and interesting because it has this sort of permanently regenerating tissue there that's pushing out. It's almost like unraveling like a scroll from mm -hmm. the, the, the center and you just like, and then the, the old bits of scroll, it really looks like it as well. There's these kind of long flowing leaves and then the old bits of scroll get kind of like crappy at the ends, but they're just like slowly unraveling more and more. Very, very slowly, I guess. I'm, I'm guessing it grows at an extremely non-rapid rate given that it's a desert plant yeah but it or does it wait for the rain and then just like go for it and like grow a meter in a day i didn't find anything about um how quickly it grows but um it grows for like a very long time um and i also have a fact about why that is like what happened because scientists studied it and they found when they looked at the the genome and sort of built a phylogenetic genetic tree so the sort of relationship or sort of the 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 history of all of the genes when they were um, introduced and how they were modified and you can build this whole tree and then you can see what changes happened when and they found out that mm -hmm. uh, 86 million years ago there was um, a whole genome duplication event something that we talked about quite <gasps> often before yeah um yeah, where it's in the name, like the whole genome duplicated itself and where in like mammals and most like like animal organisms that would just lead to a non-functioning animal. In plants, it's not a big problem. Like plants have their ways to dealing with just like twice the genome size or four times the genome size or even more. Um, and very often when that happens, it gives you or gives the plant a chance to reorganize some things, shuffle some, some things around and do new stuff and um, Velvicia evolved to have a very efficient low-cost genome um, they did they had a lot of um, sort of epigenetic editing and other genetic changes that are, were happening in in this time and it led to this streamlined um, genome where there's no sort of unnecessary wasteful in, uh, processes that are running there's just like very lean um sort of cellular processes that lead to more growth of the leaves for just like longer continuous growth and nothing like no fancy metabolites no fruits no uh, i don't even know if it's like properly flowering that that plant but it just doesn't do like any of mm -hmm. the exciting stuff that other plants do they just like grow two <laughs> leaves for a very long time i mean is it, it must be a flowering plant it right it must be um but uh i guess it, it flowers very rarely like, i think um very often it's sort of clonal reproduction that it does oh it's a gymnosperm so no it's not an angiosperm it's not got proper flowers mm -hmm. oh it really looks a mess I'm, I'm looking at it again and it just looks it looks a bit like um this big kelp like dried seaweed that's just kind of washed up on a beach and then partially died i think that's probably the best mm -hmm. the best uh comparison visually but would you say, like, I, I have also a quote um, about the guy that it's named after, Friedrich Welwitsch, um, uh, where people said about him in 1859 that he could do nothing but kneel down on the burning soil and gaze at the plant, half in fear lest the touch should prove it figment of imagination. Like, if I look at it, I I would, I'm, yeah, I would, probably not just like bow down in 
complete admiration because it looks like a mess. It looks like a plant. It's just like flowing over I the mean, soil. Realistically, he is what sounds like a very pale man who has presumably been wandering in the desert for some stage <laughs> and likely is not, you know, in his best self. Uh, it, People see things, you know. That could very well be. Um, uh, yeah. Did he take water? Did he stay near his vehicle when his vehicle broke down? Or did he just like wander <laughs> through the Namibian desert and yeah. <laughs> there is again like the as soon as you think desert you think of like Australian survival rules. Yeah, I think it I think it must be similar in most deserts, right? Like Yeah. I'm I am looking at the Wikipedia article and it's definitely worth a check out because, you know, it is a gymnosperm, so it sort of has these these cones that gymnosperms have and by the picture, so it's a botanical etching. It's not like a photograph. They look like they're they're bright red, which is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Wonder how much of its energy it's putting to that. Oh, I see photographs. They're not quite as bright as the <laughs> the, the photo would the the picture would have you think. It's a bit more of a a dull, <laughs> deserty brown color, to be honest. But it still has this. Um, it still does these fruiting bodies at least. Like uh, I thought it would just do. The the leaves, yeah. But do you, it's made some effort, but not a lot of effort to be beautiful. <laughs> I would say. Do you have something for old, or should I give you another for word? Old. Well, I actually had something that is old and is also related to what you just mentioned, which was this genome dupli- duplication, and it's this idea of paleo polyploidy. So, do you know what that means? I mean, paleo is always like old ancient stuff and polyploidy yeah. is having multiple copies of the genome available so things that used to have multiple copies and lost some of it is it that no it's it's basically like genome duplications including whole genome duplications which is what you mentioned when they just like control c control v their entire genome that happened in ancient times so usually several million years ago um, and I just wanted to bring this up because this is insanely common um, in plants to the fact that I found a reference that said that all angiosperm genomes, so everything that flowers that you've ever seen, has shown evidence of paleopolyploidy. Mm-hmm. So at one stage, it's like got an extra genome. And this can be either sort of like the, the simple thing is that it it doubles its own genome. I think this usually happens because it tries to, you know, make offspring and it, it f- screws something up when it's supposed to like first halve the genomes to make the gametes. And then like, I think there's something like that. There's like a, mm-hmm. an error that gets the duplication. The alternative is that you get um, input from another species. You get kind of the merging of two genomes. But I think it's kind of cool that like every... All angiosperms seem to have this, that they've just, at some point, they've done it. And then, you know, through the process of time, they've often then whittled down, got rid of a lot of um, Mm -hmm. genes. But you can now, people have developed programs to sort of see how these, you you can see not only... Like, often it's not just like this, there's this one gene that's present in multiple similar... Like, not exactly the same, because it was a long time ago and there's been evolution, but like, there's a few copies of the genes. But often there's like 
chunks of the genome that are copied. So you'll mm-hmm. see like a run of like let's say twelve genes, and then they're sort of copied somewhere else and they've changed a bit. And these are these like runs are are very nice clear clues that there's been like copy pastes happening throughout the genomes. And there's now yeah people have developed programs to sort of look at this um, in the computer in silico mm-hmm. and and find evidence of this happening. So it's it's really cool. What I like about this is very often that um, it's the small mistakes that help you. Like there's these like single base mutations that happen randomly, and many of them are silent. Like they don't change the protein that's made in the end, but they help you to track things because when you have a gene that's important for something in a plant that all plants have, like something in the photos uh, photosynthesis machinery. Um, you would expect that all of them have these genes, but not all of these genes look exactly the same. They have like these small errors in them that don't change anything in the protein that's made, but in a genetic code, you have these changes. And then you can find sort of all the things that have the same error. So, you know, they are, they must be related somehow because somewhere this error happened and then they split and diverged into these different species. And I like that it's these, these yeah mistakes that help us now track these these genes over time when they are very similar or essential genes that don't really change a lot in function between the species but they still have traces of the evolutionary history in them yeah i think doing all of these gene alignments and genome alignments and then sort of it's almost it's like forensics right Mm -hmm. you're tracking the changes and you're like oh this one looks like this one so that suggests that you know they evolve from the same common answer it's it's very Mm -hmm. it's very csi i would say and it's quite sexy science i think yeah do you want to have another word sure ocean okay i have two facts that are related to oceans and they're both related to sort of plant friends um so not not the things that we see growing on the land um the first (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think that was a clue in the oceans i'm clearly not with it very much today (laughs) okay so the first thing is diatoms and my entire fact is diatoms exist because I think like diatoms are photosynthesizing algae and they're really just incredible because they are sort of single-celled things and they have this skeleton outside that's made of silicon. Mm-hmm. So they're these beautiful creatures in glass houses and they they look like like Christmas ornaments. And I really encourage all of you to just go and have a quick Google of these. And I know I always do this. I'm always the one who's like, oh, stop listening and go and go and look instead, which is not the point of a podcast, but too bad. Go and look at them. They are really the most beautiful thing. The other, the other image I can give you, the mind image I can paint for you now is maybe if you're a kid and you had a kaleidoscope where like, you know, this thing where you turn one end of it and sort of glitter and jewels move around and they... Yeah, I think they really look like that, I guess. Or some of them look like wheels with spokes in them. They are very, very geometrical. And mm-hmm. yeah, I have all of these crazy structures that look like something from, like you would find in a math book, for example, for like um, some mathematical structures that have symmetry and some sort of repeating patterns and all of these things or like somebody in the 90s drawing what like aliens moving through space looks like Mm -hmm. they have this kind of neon light look to them as well when you see them under a microscope because you've got this sort of silicon shell is is shining a bit under the microscope yeah and yeah so not only are they incredible but they're also incredibly important it's something that yeah I, i i raise it because it's not something that i think about very often and then every now and then i'm like oh yeah diatoms exist and not only do they exist but they're they're sort of in the earth and 
there's a ton of them and they're generating almost maybe up to 50% of the oxygen that's produced on the planet. You know, they do photosynthesis. Maybe 20 to 50% is the number that's given on um, Wiki, but they're just incredibly, incredibly important. And I think we do have this bias to think more of organisms that are big and that we can see with our naked eye. So just a shout out to the diatoms. <laughs> Less of a fact and more of a like, shout yeah. out to my friends, the diatoms. Keep doing what you're doing because we really need that oxygen. Yeah, but, but I think that's the fact in that, that they are so very abundant and so very important. Like each of them is like microscopic and does only like a very tiny bit of photosynthesis. But they like globally, they are so very, very important for... Um, yeah, the oxygen production, as you said, but also like their shells when they sink down and sediment, um, they are very important for the uh, sort of the sediment buildup. And I think stuff like the the cliffs of Dover, like these chalk cliffs, um, a lot of that is like is that uh, not- uh, uh, uh. now we're moving on to the next fact, <laughs> which is a different organism which makes shells out of calcium carbonate. So that's the same thing that you find in seashells. It's this this chalkiness. And those are called coccolithophores. Um, and these are, again, a sort of eukaryotic phytoplankton. They, they actually um, come about, like, they're a little bit evolutionarily distinct from plants and normal algaes. Um, but again, they're, they're tiny microscopic alg- algae, like micro, uh, microorganisms, you know, one cell. But they have these beautiful shells. And in the case of coccolithophores, they often have... Um, shells that are made of overlapping discs or shells that mm-hmm. are made of spikes or almost a flower-shaped um, shell or trumpets coming out of this spherical shell, um, all made of these this calcium uh, carbonate. There are some that even have a pentagram. Yeah, five-sided shapes that sort of fit around... Pentagons. To f- pentagon that's what i want to say um they sort of fit around the this spherical structure almost like a soccer ball like mm-hmm. again time to get your google out guys because these things are really really incredible um again they're very very important so they are in the ocean doing their thing but they make up a really like the basis of a lot of ocean sort of food pyramids like um they're eaten by things but they're also producing this this calcium carbonate shell, which can then like fall, be shed off them and fall to the bottom of the ocean, um, which has some importance for the movement of carbon around the earth. And again, despite being small, when they bloom, you can get these big coccolithophore blooms and you can see them from space there because the the shells are sort of white and they reflect light a little bit. You can see the oceans turning milky in these huge masses. So... I think, again, something that's like tiny, but really worth taking a bit of a look at. What I like about coccolithophores is the modular setup that they have going. Like the, they, as you said, like they make all of these different structures. So they sort of make one at a time in, this, in, in the cell and then like push mm-hmm. it out and then slowly build the entire outside structure. And to this day, as far as I know, we don't really have a clue why they're doing this. We have like a couple of ideas how that mm-hmm. could help. But... Um, none of it could be proven as sort of the one or very few reasons um, why they have these shells. So it's like these mysterious but super cool to look at little creatures. 
Yeah, there's these ideas that maybe they're using them for protection to not get eaten. Maybe they're using them to help them sink. So you make more of these like heavy things and you, you sink down deeper into the water column, which could you know, get you to more food or protect you from too much light. Maybe they're also just shields against too much light. Some of them even might be channeling light in because they have this more like flower conical shape. There's a lot of different examples um, or suggestions as to why why they exist. But it's, yeah, it's, I'm not sure if it's super clear. And just mm-hmm. what Yoram said, when you do look at these, you should consider how big some of these external structures are compared to the size of the organism itself because there are videos on the internet somewhere some scientists have made some beautiful videos of each of these pieces of the shell being made and it has to be made inside this organism and it takes up almost all of the space of the organism and then gets like pushed out it's like birthed out through (laughs) the edge of the organism and just like pops and like sits on sits on the outside and then it just makes another one and another one and another one. And it's just like constantly churning out these mm-hmm. these little shells. They're called coccoliths. Um, but yeah. yeah, truly, truly incredible. And uh, the, the last thing that I have to say about coccolith is that like this, this sort of controlled deposition of calcium carbonate is like an inorganic molecule. That in itself mm-hmm. is like exciting. You have like an organic system that makes these inorganic structures. But then we can do the same thing mm-hmm. and that's our teeth and bones mm-hmm. and so on. And I like to like, I like this as a reminder to myself sometimes that like, like, yeah, like our teeth and bones and so on, they are these like weird inorganic structures inside our organic body. And like our cells have the ability to like fuse inorganic molecules together to form of form these structures like teeth, or in this case, coccolithophores for, for uh, or coccolith yeah. for the, by the coccolithophores. Um, well, I think that's yeah. what's what's so weird about these coccoliths is they have these extremely complex structures, and they're basically like made of calcium carbonate. But then there's there's other proteins and sugars and things that are helping shape them. And if if we put calcium carbonate into you know a beaker and crystallize it, we just get like a crystal. We get like a cube or something. So we we also still don't really understand how are they able able to make such intricate and uniform and like perfect modular shapes at such a tiny scale it's yeah it's something that we can't do and that in itself is is just insanely impressive yeah i have something else for for ocean um i found somewhere a fact about uh, where you find in the ocean the most chlorophyll as an indicator for like the most organisms doing photosynthesis there and i was surprised where that is do you want to take a guess where that is yeah yeah then tell us is it like do you mean like globally or like up and down yeah. like layers no globally like where if you if you have a globe and you should point at the place or at the, the conditions where you find most of them because it's like it's not one single place but it's like a common property uh, I think there's a lot under the sea ice that's like active sometimes, and then there's a lot like at mid latitude. So it's not at the equator, but it's not at the poles because I think at the poles iron is limiting, um, and also you have like weather like it gets too cold, so it's like not active in the winter. No, it's it's like cold is actually a very good, good point. Like they are in very cold polar waters and mm-hmm. in places where ocean currents bring cold water from the bottom to the surface and that can happen also in the uh, equator 
in some areas there. So you have like these these big currents going around the ocean and sometimes you have sort of water that falls down into mm -hmm. greater depth and you have other places where it comes back up and has something to do with like temperature and salt content and um, general like ocean currents and it's it's an important system but also like sometimes a fragile system like I know that some researchers are afraid that it can be disturbed or by things like the climate change um, and that is like a big problem like for example continental Europe has a climate that's so mild because we have ocean currents bringing temperature but it's all um, <laughs> sort of distantly related to my fact is that these these waters these cold polar waters where the water comes up from like deep um, deep below the sea it's very cold um, but it's also very nutrient rich um, mm -hmm. because you don't have a lot of sort of biological activity happening at the base of the uh, like at, at low um, at altitudes is wrong word, like at, at high depths and so nutrients accumulate there mm -hmm. and then they're washed up and that's where then you find algae growing that then can take all of these nutrients and that's why you find the highest chlorophyll uh, concentration in these areas where you have cold water coming up. Yeah, so I guess it's also um, this kind of trade-off. So like when you think about the depth of the ocean, you want to be low enough that you're getting the nutrients from, from these like lower parts, the upwellings, and then also high enough that you still have enough light to photosynthesize. So there's kind of this trade-off mm -hmm. of being higher or lower that's happening and there. And you said something about the seasons before, and that's also very important, that like during the cold seasons, these nutrients accumulate even more. And then when it gets warmer again, then you get these blooms because then suddenly there's um, a rich banquet available for these, these algae to take all of the nutrients and start growing very quickly when the temperatures heat up and there's light available. Suddenly all of these nutrients become available and then you get like all of the algae growing there. And I found it surprising because sort of, naively i would think like in tropical waters where the conditions are, uh, are nice um you fight would find more more algae growing there but because there's so much life going on there already probably the nutrients are sort of not depleted but used by many more creatures than you have in these areas where you have the cold waters coming up um in in polar waters uh i i want to ancient is my next word or old. Okay, so I think I'm going to go with the discussion of lycopods, which are... Lycopods? Yeah, it's a group of vascular plants, so it means they have, like, vascular tissue, which is xylem and phloem that can, you know, transport things up and down the plant. Um, and it includes selaginella, which you might be familiar with. It's one of these kind of model mm -hmm. plants that sort of spreads out a little bit. But lycopods are called also club mosses or fir mosses. So if you think of something that looks halfway between a fir tree and a moss, that's pretty mm -hmm. much where you're at. So it's quite... Like, the ones we have these days are quite small, but the way they look, they have this kind of scaly look that's a little bit like a fir tree. Um, so, like, my first fact is just that these, these guys exist and they're kind of awesome. And they're kind of... Uh, basic plants in which just means that they don't have flowers really i think we're a bit judgmental as far as uh, plants go and if it doesn't have a flower we're like oh that's very primitive darling um they don't <laughs> yes. have flowers instead they have spores a little bit like moss do um and although these days they're they're all quite like stumpy back in the carboniferous age 
they apparently just dominated. They formed these sort of huge tree-like things and were covering landscapes. And a lot of the coal deposits that we have these days are thanks to lycopods. So mm-hmm. shout out to lycopods. It's your fault that global warming is happening. Um, <laughs> I mean, they they try to help by burying a lot of carbon underground. Yeah. It's like us <laughs> they, messing in up fairness, by they bringing did their it back part. up. Yeah, yeah. And like, like, having said that, related to the reason I'm I'm blaming the lycopods and really putting them this on them is because of another fact about lycopods. And this is something I think I learned from the No Such Thing as a Fish podcast a while back. And I don't know if you know that podcast, but they sort of share facts. And it's one of these shows that you can really listen to again and again and again. Okay, so this is a fact that I think I've I've listened to this episode like three times now. But every time I hear, hear this segment, I get so excited by it. And it's the fact that... So lycopods, they have these spores. And the spores are extremely hydrophobic and powdery and very, very flammable. And because of this, they burn rapidly and brightly. But luckily, also, they don't make too much heat, so they're not a hot fire. And these sort of nice properties of the lycopod spores mean that lycopod powder has been used to create light, like for flashbulbs, for sort of fireworks. It's also been used for special effects in Victorian theatre. Again, you've got these like flames happening, but it's a little bit less dangerous because it's not a hot flame. It's a kind of rapidly burning out cooler flame. And um, people even developed an internal combustion machine um, in fact, the first one back in 1807 using this lycopodium powder, so the spores and just like exploding little plant spores to get things moving. Uh-huh. And that's very cool. Is this also the stuff that people who breathe fire use? That like I know that they sometimes. No, I think they use kerosene. <laughs> I No, but I, I know there's like a powder type and a liquid type. And I think kerosene is a liquid type. And I think some of them also like blow. Like I found one picture where somebody is like like lighting like in a circus outfit light uh, making like fire in front of him so after a little bit of googling Yoram just found out that because the spores themselves are so small one of the benefits is that if you wanted to use them for like flame throwing from your mouth you could basically spray them out of your mouth like water they have this almost water like property because of their tiny size that's quite cool but you also have to make sure that you don't inhale it. Like whenever you inhale, like fine dust, that can also be problematic. So, but I mean, nobody does like breathes fire because it's a very safe activity. I think you have to. Do, we like, have to breathe. You have to exhale, never inhale. Right? It's kind of a controlled breathing thing. I think mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah, I have. Do you have something else for for ancient? Otherwise, I'll. No, you go with your ancient facts. <laughs> um, did you know that the oldest? tree in the world it's in witness protection it just means that nobody is able to find out where it is right yeah um yeah it's okay uh, the the oldest living tree that we know of i mean there could be others but the ones that where we have an idea how old it is it's called yeah. a Methuselah. um it's a bristlecone pine and do you want to take a wild guess at how old it is uh <laughs> Less than is it what what sort of what sort of thing is it a bristle pine so it's a conifer bristle cone, yeah 
so in my head, the the angiosperms diversified four hundred million years ago, but it might be even older than that because it's a. Oh no! But you mean not? You mean like actual age of the plant, not evolutionary yeah, actual time age of like a living plant? So not like when it, uh, when we find fossils of it, but um, oh still no, I'm alive. thinking of like an ancient plant um, species. So okay, yeah, it's so definitely not in the it? millions of years. Okay, so I'm thinking it's three thousand and twenty years old. Yeah, I mean that's. That's not too far off. It's like about 4,800 years old. So almost 5,000 okay. years old. Um, and yeah, its exact location is kept a secret because of a guy called Donald Rusk Curry. Um, Wait, because of Donald? What did Donald yeah. do? Donald, in 1964, um, and that's a second fact related to this, um, he killed... Uh, another tree that was already very old and that was believed to be uh, even older around 4,900 years old and um, in 1964 he was doing like a field trip so he studied one of the more recent ice ages the little ice age uh, that started around 600 years ago or happened 600 years ago and he was like taking core samples from trees and then using the rings of the trees to to have an idea about the, the temperatures at the time and so on and doing like mm-hmm. um, very straightforward science there. But then he came to this like very old tree and um, there it, the there's multiple different tales of the story. But apparently he tried to take multiple cores um, with like a drill bit. And the drill bit broke off because of the, the the tree was so very hard that he couldn't really get a good core and couldn't do his science. And so he asked the local authorities if he could cut down the trees and conventionally count the rings and do his analysis by by doing that. And he got the permission, and oh, then he no. did that. And then they figured out this was uh, the oldest tree ever recorded, four thousand nine hundred years old. And here is a big debate about like some people say like we knew before that this is a very old tree and that there was no good reason to cut it down to study something that's 600 years ago. There's many other trees that are of that age that you mm-hmm. could have used instead. Um, but Donald Russ Curry himself said that he didn't know that, that he wasn't aware of the age, um, and that he only learned that when he, the, the tree was already cut down. Um, and yeah, because that happened, the, the other tree where they figured out how old it was, they decided not to disclose its location so no other like geologist comes around and cuts it down to study I don't know what happened last week um, in geology times and then he's like, oh yeah, there's an old tree, maybe he knows and cuts it down as well. Um, so yeah, that's why the oldest tree is in witness protection. You like Methuselah, the name Methuselah? It's like a yeah. biblical name. It's like this this guy from the Bible who's like the oldest guy who's ever lived. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's it. Okay, I think so. I, I, there was a question. Hey. I don't know. Like, I don't know my Bible <laughs> stuff. I thought you, you that knew that. That was a statement. He yeah. lived really long, but not as long. I just, I just Googled it. He only lived like 980 years or something. So it's like, it's not actually that long compared to the tree. It's yeah. A bit crap, actually. Yeah, like five metu- me- actual Methuselahs fit in the lifespan of the tree. Of Methuselah. one Methuselah. <laughs> um, Sorry, apple trees. Tell me about the apple trees. Yeah, um, that was actually how I started looking at like old trees and wondering like what is the oldest apple tree. Um, I found that there's like one that was um, proven to be around now where, where is my, uh, around 194 years old that grew in Vancouver, but not yeah. Vancouver. Vancouver, Canada, Vancouver, Washington, United States, in Old Apple Tree Park. 
um, which was believed to be planted there at Fort Vancouver by a British Royal, Royal Navy officer, Lieutenant Emilius Simpson, uh, who obtained the seeds at a dinner party in London before he went over the ocean and then in the fort planted a tree. And I just imagine like a, a dinner party where just like sitting around and being like, um, Emilius, hey, old hey chap. You. <laughs> you want some seeds? I got some good stuff. Take these. Or do you think he just like, maybe he just ate an apple at the, at the dinner party and then he put it in his pocket and then just, you know, packed that, that waistcoat. You know how, like, when you, you it, it's winter again and you bring out your, your winter coat and you find, like, old tissues or, you know, luckily some a five-euro note in your pocket and you're like, hey, I forgot this. Maybe he just, like, <laughs> did that with the apple seeds. Just <laughs> found, like, a rotten apple in his pocket and was like, oh, okay, I can't eat that. I'll just Do you not say sometimes put half-eaten no, I... food in your pockets for later? No. No, I, first of all, the concept of half-eaten doesn't exist for me. Like, <laughs> I finish what I start. Happen. Yeah, um, yeah, but it just means that like I finish the food that other people started eating, namely my child. Uh, I I was I was eating an ice cream the other day, and I like got halfway through, and I was really bored of the ice cream, and I was really missing you. <laughs> like, I used to just like hand this off to Yoram or Mercedes. I'm like, I'm bored of this ice cream. Please take this from me. Yeah, and I now would always I have be to happy. eat the whole ice cream because I don't have friends. Yeah, and I lost all um, uh, independence <laughs> about the food that I eat because it's mostly leftovers from my child. Like I prepare something, I let him eat, and then whatever remains is then for me. Um, so maybe that's the same that's, for... See, I trained you to be a good father. Like you having <laughs> to be friends with me first made you a better, more like understanding father. <laughs> Um, I have two more old facts. Um, one is that um, what I didn't know is that cherry trees can get also very old. The Probably the oldest one that we have today is between 1,800 and 2,000 years old, and that's in Japan. Um, there is a, a, a tree of the species Prunus zupirtella. Um, it's a wild cherry tree um, and it's growing, st still growing, still producing flowers um, uh, in in a uh, in in Japan, and I'm just trying. Mm -hmm. I, I had a name written down. Um, yeah, Jindai Sakura is uh, one of the oldest one, but there's also Uzuzumi Sakura and uh, Daigo Sakura, um, which are all very old trees, and they're sort of kept for often in in monasteries or shrines, um, and they still grow they still produce flowers um and beautiful leaves so even um after thousands of years they are still active um and that's sort of an a, a, a happy story and sadly i also have a less happy story because um in the the oldest olive tree that we know of are also around the age 2000 to 2500 years old and one uh, particularly old specimen that was around 2,500 years old, was just killed by the raging wildfires in Greece. Um, oh, no. Right now, we have in, in Europe, in the Mediterranean region, in Turkey and Greece specifically, um, mm -hmm. very large areas that are on fire and I think still not under control. Um, it's it's really, it's massive. Um, and yeah, one, one of the victims of this fire was this like very, very old olive tree that was also like kept by the locals and sort of was a local landmark and it uh, was, was killed by the fire. But yeah. 
So now I don't know if I should go from that fact to something about fire or if I should go again to something about old things. I think I'll do the old things quickly and then go back to the fire. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the old thing is sort of related to your cherry tree like conversation. And so there's this amazing thing, incredible thing that plants can do, which is that they can sense the temperature conditions and the light conditions and, you know, sense when it gets cold and then also sense when the cold has passed. And they know based on this when to, for example, flower or when to put their their leaf buds out and when to do all of these important things, also when to drop their leaves in autumn. Like they're sensing the environment around them and they're using this information in a quite a complex way to tell when to do these important life events. And it, it's, it's really important because if you put your flowers, your leaf out too early and then there's a cold snap, they will all get frozen and you will die and you've used up all your energy and you've basically like, you've really put yourself in a bad position. Um, so plants do this and it's, it's really impressive. What's also impressive is that we have some of these really long-term events which have mapped at what time of the year plants put out their flowers or put out their leaves um, through decades and decades and decades. And I know that one of the oldest sort of records that we have of these, these um, events, histories of trees, comes from, I think, cherry blossoms in Japan. But I wanted to specifically mention one that is from England because there's a woman called Jean Combs and she started back in... 1950, when she was quite a young woman, she started looking at when some oaks, um, the leaves sort of had bud burst. So the leaves come out of the oaks when spring is happening. And she would just sort of record this, okay, it's, you know, the 3rd of March and the oak has, has burst its, its bud. And she has been doing this consistently since that time from the 1950s to 2007. So she's quite an older lady now. She's in her 90s, I believe. But this is one of the the oldest continuous records that we have. Um, again, we have also like some from Japan, but it's, it's, what, it's a very old record for 70 years now of when oaks leaves are coming out. And this is really important in the context of global change because we know that as the the climate change is making, you know, patterns shift, we have shifts also in when leaves are coming out and stuff like that. And we can we can see from her data and from the data of other people how these shifts have happened with times. So mm-hmm. big shout out to Jean who just sort of as a hobby for, for seventy years has quietly recorded Mm-hmm. when oak leaves are coming out in, in her garden and surrounding areas. And what was the other fact? Aha, I have something also about fire. I have two things about fire. Um, so the, pers- the first thing is that there are plants that have adapted to tolerate fire and they're called pyrophytes. So pyro just mm-hmm. means fire and phyte is, is the planty bit. And they're... <laughs> There are, there, are two, there are two types of plants in this pyrophyte category, and one belongs to the sub, subcategory called passive pyrophytes, which is basically that when, when fire happens, they, they get damaged, but they're, they're kind of okay. You know, maybe they hunker down and have really thick bark, um, and then they can, or they can spring back more rapidly than other plants. So they're passive pyrophytes, but there are also things that are called active pyrophytes. Um, which basically, the plants are not setting the fires themselves. 
But when a fire comes along, they are encouraging the hell out of that fire. So <laughs> basically, <laughs> they contain a lot of volatile oils, which sort of helps the fire burn hotter and stronger and faster and, and spread. And I think the the obvious example is some some of Australia's plants, things like eucalyptus, which are just like filled with these oils that want to snap and crackle and pop the second any heat gets near them. So that's that's my first thing. It reminds me of these these birds that are setting fires. There are these falcons um, that are that have been observed multiple times of carrying like pieces of ember or burning twigs to places where there is no fire yet um, to start a new fire. When like there's wildfire happening already, and then they sort of spread it out because it's believed that then like wildlife flees the area and then the the falcons can catch all of the like small mammals that try to run away from the fire and come out of the bushes um and then they can eat them and so there's like birds actively setting stuff on fire um my second fire related fact is caracans do you know what caracans are no no i try to i think it it's not like a common thing, but you might only be familiar with it because I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with caracans. Um, I heard about them when I was a bachelor student and I think they were, they were researched and discovered at my university. So it was sort of some local news and it's just this really cool thing that's, again, quite specific to Australia. So um, caracans, the, the word, it's a chemical, mm-hmm. but the, the word comes from the West Australian indigenous people, the Noongar people, um, who have a word for smoke that is karak. Mm-hmm. So karakans are chemicals that are found in smoke. And why this is related to plants is because many plant species, especially plants that grow in Australia, um, they, they like smoke and they in fact need smoke to help stimulate the germination of the seeds. So this has been known for a really long time. If you want to um, germinate and grow certain native Western Australian species, you have to actually water them with smoke water. So, you know, they get water and they bubble smoke through it so that the chemicals from the smoke become infused in the water. And that's, that's basically the signal to the plant that the fire is passed and now it's time to, to break dormancy and to germinate. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry. Yeah, I've heard that you can also like use today this like liquid smoke that you sometimes use as an aromatic in cooking. That it has like some of these brands they have the the right chemical mix that you can actually use it then in plant science to germinate seeds with it by adding it to, for example, growth medium or the water that you use um, for the plants exactly for that effect. And I didn't know it's like I didn't know the name of the chemicals, but apparently, yeah, you can find your ways to to mimic fire when you couldn't you can't really set a fire to your greenhouse just to have the the plants germinate yeah i think um it's it's quite cool honestly it's just they they knew something about the smoke was making the plants germinate and then some chemists sort of hunkered down and they 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 got smoke and they separated it into sort of different components and they tried to work out which chemicals were present in the smoke. And ultimately, I think back in 2004, so like 15 years ago now, they realized that there was this this one thing that seemed to, when you applied that chemical to the plants, that was like stimulating germination. And then it was found that that, that chemical is actually quite similar to stragalactones. Um, 
So this is a hormone in plants that signals sort of uh, growth and stuff within the plants. So caracans from the smoke are mimicking these signaling hormones. And they've now found that there are several different types of caracans and they can do various, they have various effects, not just on germination, but I think also on growth and signaling within the plants. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, I have something where there's smoke, there's fire, and one way to start fire is using lasers. Um, wow. I, I was doing that today. I was like at my, my place where I work. Starting fires? We have no a laser cutter, and there was like a lot of smoke there um, happening. That's how I <laughs> thought, of, thought of this, or constructing a very weird segue. But anyway, um, <laughs> I, I wondered like, what link is there between lasers and plants? And I found a couple of things. Um, while I was waiting for like the laser cutter to, to cut through a piece of like MDF wood um, that was cutting, I found that um, like that you can actually grow plants in laser light, um, which at first okay. glance I was like, why? And then I was like, ah, but I mean, it's just light. But then I read but about it, it and it's like... It's very red light. So do, do the plants, are they very pale or do, like, does it affect their flowering or what's no, the I mean, impact? The, the color is something you can adjust. You can make lasers in many, many different wavelengths. And you can. Okay. And very often, when you use LEDs for growing plants, you use like um, blue and red uh, a mixture and mm-hmm. you get like this purple look. And you can do the same with lasers. And then you just use a blue and a red laser and then you sort of bring both beams together and shine that on plants. I guess I'm confused. How is a laser like actually different from an LED light except for being more intense? Um, not really that much different. Um, an LED light is also often a very uh, like narrow wavelength band, so it's sim- pretty much also like a single wavelength or a, f- a couple of f- uh, very few wavelengths coming together. Similar quality to laser light quality, but the good thing about a laser is that you can generate the laser light in some location and then use like fiber optics to bring the light to your greenhouse so all of the heat that's produced by the laser is elsewhere from your greenhouse so you don't have to cool your greenhouse oh, wow. as much um, like you would have to do with like conventional like fluorescent lights or um, incandescent lights or LED lights even those mm-hmm. produce quite a lot of heat um, so that's one uh, way to use that that's one paper that I found where they looked at that and they built sort of an experimental growth chamber which, where the laser made the light somewhere else and then they used fiber optic cables to bring the light to the boxes and then had the plants grow there and that worked. I remember in one of our our institute greenhouses they had to sort of turn off the the, the overhead lighting in summer because it just got too hot mm-hmm. with the like they just couldn't cool the greenhouses effectively with with the lights on and in one of the other labs I worked in we had lights that would just occasionally catch fire like especially if you had some sort of drying arabidopsis like you're trying yeah. to collect some seeds in paper bags and every now and then there'd be a small fire incidents yeah and yeah that's it's it's a it's a major problem like proper cooling of greenhouses is a huge part of the energy bill of running a Mm -hmm. greenhouse when you have like lights running there um especially when you do like extend like in winter extended periods of of light there even though it's cold outside it can get quite hot and then when or even in summer when you want to extend the growth periods in the evening hours for example so that's yeah one you're way. really altering the environmental conditions beyond just the addition of light aren't you it's like you've now changed both light and temperature at the same time instead of mm-hmm. controlling all the variables which is what we usually want to do in experiments 
And what I liked in the paper is that they said they could, because they could fine-tune the amount of light that they would send to the plants and the quality of light by changing sort of the wavelength, um, the plants were less stressed. Like they, they had less um, sort of pl- uh, light-protective proteins expressed when growing under laser light. Um, mm-hmm. And so they, they suggested that this could be an interesting alternative as a light source, but I imagine it's still technically quite complicated to set this up. Um, but if you want to make it even more complicated, I found another paper where um, they would not only sh- like create a laser light at a location, use fiber optics cable to bring that to the greenhouse. Um, mm-hmm. In the first paper, they would then shine it on a diffuser that would sort of spread out the light. So you wouldn't just have like a single pinpoint laser dot that hits that like does seem more useful though, right? Yeah, that definitely seems a bit more useful. Yeah, because the next step is another group. They used then a, a motorized mirror where they could then direct where the laser dot would shine and then they would shine it only on the plants. So you would have like a lot of pots in the growth chamber where you have like soil and plants and the laser light would only hit the plants, not the soil at all, which again okay. increases the efficiency because all of the light that you produce hits a leaf somewhere and none of the light none of the photons hits a piece of soil or pot or something else that's not plant that doesn't do anything exciting with the light so it's just like this hyper complicated high-tech setup of um pretty much having like it seems like a lot of work because the thing about plants especially like rosette like you know flat round plants they grow so you've got to be constantly adapting mm-hmm. where these these mirrors are are hitting the plant based on how how they're growing surely yeah i imagine there must be like some sort of like image recognition and lots of like very complicated <laughs> software just to make sure no photons hit the soil and all of the photons hit the plants um, it's that or a PhD student like going in every day with a ruler and like <laughs> measuring the width of the plot and then going back to the computer and like putting it into an Excel street <laughs> and then adjusting yeah. the diameter. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would definitely like, I've, I've known some, some groups where that would be sort of the low tech solution um, to the problem, <laughs> just have a, hire a student. Um, so yeah, that's two ways of getting light onto the plants. And I also found like one way of using sort of laser cutting in plants. Um, uh, and I just put that in here because the um, the title of the paper is called Be More Specific! Exclamation mark, Laser-Assisted Microdissection of Plant Cells. And <gasps> yeah, do you have something for that? I love, I love this topic though. La- yeah, like this is so cool. Yeah. Do you want to explain what it is? Yeah, so you use a laser to cut out a single cell or even like a part, you know, a, a type of tissue like just the xylem or, you know, just the the vacuole or something. And you do this and, I mean, it's it's a lot of hard work because you have to do this millions and millions and millions, like not millions of times, but many, many times. So you're collecting single cells of a certain type and then you can get them all in a test tube and you can, you know, extract the DNA or do whatever you want. And now you know specifically what's happening just in that cell type and Mm -hmm. usually when we're doing biology you like take the whole plant or you take a whole leaf and you shove it in a blender and then you look and this way you can really find out like plants are like us they're not just like a leaf that all has the same things happening in every single cell of of the leaf they have you know like we have hearts and lungs and, and and blood and plants have that too and this is a way to really see that and it's it's so incredible and i i just I had somebody in my lab doing it when I was doing, you know, my undergraduate and I was like, my mind was blown that somebody had come up with this, 
problem solving method. Mm-hmm. Like it's just it's very clever and it's so cool. And, and I love I love single sorry. Yeah. No, absolutely. Like I absolutely share the excitement. Also like if you think about the technical difficulties, like you want to yeah. like your laser has to be strong enough to burn away some of the material that you don't want, but like whatever you put heat in such a small space you risk of damaging just like blowing up the entire cell and everything that you're interested in so just like the fine-tuning of having like actually destroying the stuff that you want to destroy while protecting the stuff that you want to protect um, but it's exactly it's exactly laser cutting that you're doing but at a smaller scale right it's yeah. exactly that just um and then it's sort of like i guess you cut around the cell so you've already got these very thin slices and then you cut around what you want and then it kind of like gets extracted into like knocked mm-hmm. back into a collection tube that you have yeah yeah, yeah. it's just a, oh, i'm so happy you brought that up that's so cool <laughs> yeah I, I always i was always sad that i like couldn't do anything with laces in my my lab work because um I, I love biology so much but like i was always jealous of the people could who could play around with lasers then later on like in a, in a different <laughs> job i was um i could visit a laser lab and then like they have these um, sort of setups on a table with like where the beams go and it's all very scary because often the, you can't see the laser so you have to wear special goggles to protect your eyes because you can't really tell if it's on or off um, it is behind like two sets of doors to make sure that nobody accidentally wanders in and it's like this whole setup and then you play around with like laser beams and light f- flying somewhere and then doing fancy stuff with it yeah I was always jealous that I couldn't do that in my lab times this is also really understand important for things like understanding. So we have this this sort of the next green movement will be making C three crops into C four crops. So like turning plants that photosynthesize one way into a type that, that photosynthesizes a little bit of a, a different way that could be better in in hot and dry conditions, especially. Um, but to do that, we need to understand what's the difference between these two plants and you need to understand that the c4 plants what we what we want to make have these very specialized cell types and there like this is this is kind of how i i have come across this this laser capture micro dissection you know being able to cut out those different types of very specialized cell in the c4 plant and see oh in that cell it's expressing this gene to a much higher level than it is in that other cell and that's Mm -hmm. what makes it like so cool really really cool stuff yeah yeah really really cool um uh i think like we have three more facts to go for today i'm just trying to to find like a good uh, next topic i have one like food would you like do you have something for that food related i don't have food but i do have drink and it's it's kind of a it's kind of a quick fact as well. So the fact is just that there is a thing that exists that is called drunken trees. So drunken trees, also known as tilted trees or an entire drunken forest. It's basically exactly as you imagine. It's trees that instead of sort of aligning upwards have sort of slumped a little bit to the side. And usually like, you know, they've still got a straight stem. It's not like they're broken mm. or deformed. They've just sort of leaned over to a bit one side and people have sort of questioned why this is happening. And one of the, the reasons is that they grow in the very northern regions where you have this this soil that is sort of perpetually frozen. Um, but when there's a little bit of so the plants are growing in this soil and then a little bit of it might melt. And because of differential melting on one side of the plant or the other side of the plant, the tree ends up just sort of sinking in. 
Mm-hmm. So, and you can't see. I'm, I'm doing a beautiful impression here of a tree that's like slowly, <laughs> slowly, drunkenly going to one side. So, like frost is the main reason. This kind of melting of of more solid earth suddenly kind of giving way a little bit with with some you know seasonal warming but there can also be things um like some landslides or earthquakes or or other regions um but i think it seems it looks quite impressive i would really Mm -hmm. like one day to go to one of these drunken forests and just see all these trees that and they're not always they're not always going the same way. Like there's there's an image that I saw on Wikipedia where there's sort of some that are really, you know, leaning to the right and some of them are leaning to the left and it's just they're all just a little bit skewify in the image. Mm-hmm. I think it looks it looks quite beautiful. Yeah, and there's some that are very iconic where they're really like bent into a curve, where they're sort of at the bottom. There's yeah, they they grow yeah, like a Yeah, that seems a bit C-shape. different. Yeah. yeah. That's like a slightly the, different reasoning, I think. Yeah, I think in the book that we read in the Hidden Life of Trees for for the uh, Plant Book Club, um, in one of the chapters, uh, Peter Wohlleben is also talking about this effect. And I think there, his explanation um, is that you have like snow sitting on the young saplings and sort of bending them down while mm-hmm. they're growing in winter. And then the snow melts again, and they, they grow up again, and the next snowfall comes and bends them down again a little bit. Um, until they're strong enough to withstand the pressure of the snow and then they continue just growing upwards. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get like the this like bent shape is his explanation. But as like his explanations sometimes were dubious. I'm happy <laughs> uh I'm I'm happy when when we have like multiple other sources as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's just a different phenomenon. So I think that does sound reasonable to, to me that like a weight or wind or something could form this kind of curved look. But yeah, that's that's a different aesthetic than a tree that's kind of mm-hmm. straight but skewiffy, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Some of them really look wonky. Okay, I want the topic of sweetness. Sweetness. Yeah. Oh. Um, oh yeah. I, yeah, I have. I have. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to go with with these with these one or two facts for for the end bit. Um, I recently talked with my wife about whether or not you can eat apricot seeds. And do you know if you can eat apricot seeds? Like, if, I you, if I would give you an apricot seed, would you eat it? Like, <laughs> I mean, firstly, I wouldn't, and I would be a bit offended that you didn't give me the actual apricot. But no, I, just I, <laughs> I would have thought that they had um, cyanide in the center of them. Like, there's like a hard bit, and then there's like a softer bit inside that looks like an almond, and my thought would be that these stone fruits that have that have got like some cyanide that it's not it's not healthy to eat yeah exactly um they don't exactly have cyanide but they have amygdalin which reacts with stomach acid to form cyanide so it's like a compound that has sort of like a cyanide end attached to it so it's it's not a cyanide but mm-hmm. once we start eating it and ingesting it becomes it, cyanide okay. and that kills us that's not good. Um, and well, what I didn't know is... If I is, eat one of them, will I die? Or could I eat I like think from, 20? Or? Yeah, I, th- I don't know exactly what the dosage is, but eating one is probably um, not immediately... Um, uh, what is it? Like killing you? What's the Fatal. word for it? Lethal. Um, Fatal. <laughs> um, but what I d- <laughs> we're didn't not, know is... We're not that kind of doctor, you guys. Um, don't don't <laughs> eat apricot seeds. This is not medical advice. Yeah, but you could get sick already. Like already with like milder like cyanide poisonings, you can feel get quite sick from it. Um, 
And what I didn't know is that the same amygdalene is also found in apple and pear seeds. So I know that like some people like to eat entire apples, including mm -hmm. the core. And at least when you worry about like amygdalene and the resulting cyanide, it's not a good idea to do that. Um, especially if you're one of the people who likes to chew very thoroughly all the food. So you really say, grind mostly, down the seeds. They're going to wash mostly through an apple seed, I would imagine. It's not, yeah. it's not getting digested unless you bite it, I would, I would guess. I found but like also a, there can't be that much of it inside apple seeds. Yeah. I mean, how many apples are you eating a day to get? A yeah, exactly. Dose? So it's it's not that you have to to worry a lot, but um, for example, I, I found most of the information on um, the Ministry of for primary primary industries in New Zealand about food safety. Um, and they say, for example, that the sale of raw apricot kernels is not allowed because once you start sort of selling just the toxic bits. Um, the chances of people cooking with it or doing something with it and then poisoning themselves is, of course, much higher than if you buy what, apricots what because are, you... What are people selling this for? Is it like some like imagined health benefit or is there something... Like, why yes. would you sell that? Uh-huh. Okay. That's, that's the second fact. Um, I feel like this is always a lesson. Like Everything that's poisonous, people are like, you know what, if you just take a little bit of it, it's actually good for you. Yeah, because amygdalene... <laughs> As some people call it, is vitamin B17, even though it's not a vitamin. That's too many Bs also. Like, it doesn't go up. Does it go up to 17? <laughs> this is by vitamin B306. <laughs> and uh, since the 1950s, amygdalene was promoted as a way to treat cancer by quacks. So it's, there's no medical like reasoning behind it. And as it turns out, amygdalene, when reacting with stomach acid, actually poisons you. Um, I mean, if you poison yourself, you probably poison the... Like, if you really knock yourself down, you're going to knock out the cancer too. That was the it's fake... not wrong. That was the fake medicine behind it. They were saying, like, yeah, the cyanide is actually good to kill the cancer. That's actually what you want to have. And that's why I mean, you should take amygdalene pills um, to treat but, your, okay, your cancer. Okay, okay, okay. I'm not. I'm definitely not supporting this because I do believe it is quackery. But that is how chemo works, right? It's like this is poison, but it will poison the cancer a bit faster than it yeah. will poison you. Yeah, like, and it's a very directed poison and has like lots of sort of yeah, helping yeah. There, drugs. There are, there are other doctory, fancy, sciencey things involved. <laughs> it's not just like stuffing your face full of apricot kernels. I do acknowledge that, yeah. but like the logic there of like take some mild poison to poison your cancer. It's yeah. not super far off what we're doing. Yeah, and that's how I imagine this um, this fake medical procedure became popular because mm. you can tell a story around it that makes sense in itself as long as you don't question like, oh, but cyanide, it's actually not good for me. Um, as long as you push <laughs> that idea away, you can be like, oh, yeah, it, it, it has toxic properties, but that is good because you want to kill the cancer. It's um, always it's one of your key flaws, Yoram. You're always questioning whether you should be like eating the apricot kernel. Too much questioning. Yeah. Too curious. Just embrace the cyanide. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the story about vitamin B17 and amygdalene is one of the like big uh, quackery stories of medical research. Um, because yeah, for decades doctors had to fight this quackery, and I think I don't know how how present it is still today, but definitely like 50s, 60s, 70s, this would come come up time and time again, where people were like, "But actually, take this natural amygdalene drug and treat your cancer," and it would, in the best case, not do anything; in the worst case, poison you. 
Realistically, I think if somebody's main selling point for their drug is linked to the fact that it's natural, you should be a little bit concerned, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's my feeling. Because as it turns out, plants have reasons and ways... To not want to be to, eaten. <laughs> exactly. To kill things like mammals, like us, because they yeah. don't want to be eaten. And that's perfectly natural um, and still not a good idea to eat. And I think with that, we have filled the 25 facts of today. We have 50 facts already presented in our mm-hmm. little like shenanigans Can you remember here. them all? We'll be quizzing you next week. Also, <laughs> which was your favorite? Also, can you guess what Yoram said wrong about Werewitchia? Also, can you guess how many edit marks Yoram is going to have to do in this episode? Because I kept on quacking up. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all for this week. See you next week on Plants and My Pets, where Yoram <laughs> and I will be in the same room. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that will be fun. I'm so excited. I will will probably still be wearing masks, guys. It's fine. I'll wear a mask, whatever. (laughs) We'll see about that. This is mask-free household. Imagine if I, like, the whole time I stayed with you, I just, like, refused to take a mask off. And I was just, like, I would not stay two meters away from you with my mask on. never in the same room. Like, (laughs) I was yelling across the corridor, like, I'm coming through. Everybody lock their doors. And then, like... I would, like, make you bring dinner to me. Like separately in my room. Like, not only am I stealing your free accommodation, but also you will bring me three meals a day while I, I wear a mask and judge you. Okay, and that is all from us this episode. We'll see you next week on Plants and Pets. As always, you can find us on www.plantsandpipettes.com where we have blog posts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Plants for Pets where you can normally speak to Yoram or on Instagram and sometimes Facebook. It's at Plants and Pipettes and that's where you talk to me. Our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.